<laughs> okay, so we are finally here. There are always glitches, man. I've never really preached a message anywhere. Anywhere where I did not have glitches. It didn't matter how well I prepared. There was always something to happen. Either it's the kids, or I'm so sick, or something happens, and there's always a glitch. And I know this business, I know it's the Lord who does it. We don't apologize for that. He's the one who does it to frustrate me so that I can focus on preaching the gospel. Because if you think it's the devil, no, it's him. <laughs> so anyway, we are finally here. Praise God for yet another day. Greetings to one and all in Christ. I have some wonderful news that the Lord has given me to share. I trust that everybody can hear me. Obviously, it was coming through. Today, we get back to Exodus chapter 6. But before we get there, let's go before the Lord and ask for his blessing upon his word again. Our dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we bless you this morning as your people. We thank you for this opportunity to gather around the person of Christ and the preaching of his gospel. We ask for your blessing upon all who are listening. We just ask that you teach us, help me, Lord, to speak that which is true and faithful. We honor you, we glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to be in Exodus chapter 6 this morning, and we're going to work our way from verses 1 to 13. Exodus chapter 6, from verses 1 to 13. And this is what Moses recorded by the Holy Spirit. And I'm reading from the New King James. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will let them go, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. And I have also had the groaning of the children of Israel whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Verse 6. Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from the from their bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who brings you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you, as a heritage, I am the Lord. So Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel, but they did not heed Moses because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Go in, tell Pharaoh king of Egypt to let the children of Israel go out of his land. 
And Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, The children of Israel have not heeded me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a command for the children of Israel and for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And that is the word of the Lord. And for titles, we have two titles. Number one, we shall carry the message, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. And then number two, then you shall know. Then you shall know. And we are back to the book of Exodus. After having made a short detour into the book of Proverbs, where we worked three messages from Proverbs 31. And of course, a few highly educated people, at least to their own imagination, thought I was making up that the Proverbs 31 woman was and is Christ Jesus personified in the picture of a woman. They were trying to argue with me about grammar and syntax and all these other literal devices. But they were never able to argue about Christ's own testimony. Who said, all of the scriptures testify of him. They testify of Christ. The Bible is not Macbeth. The Bible is not a literature book. And neither is it a self-help manual. It is the book of God about Christ, about the mind of God, about revealing the purpose of God, his sovereign will in the salvation of his people by Christ Jesus. So many people are still infected by poor hermeneutics, the poor hermeneutics of the Jews of old, Israel of old stumbled at Jesus because they did not read the scriptures correctly. They had the scriptures, they had the syntax, they had the grammar, they had the tenses, and they had their own hermeneutics. The rabbis had their own hermeneutics. But it was all useless as long as their approach failed to give them the knowledge of Christ. It was useless knowledge as long as they did not see Christ in the scriptures. So we surely are not against learning, but in gospel matters, unless one is taught of God, they will dissect a text to pieces like one dissects a lab rat and still not find Christ. doesn't matter how they dissect it. You can find tons and tons of commentaries on every chapter of the Bible, like you're going to learn from Exodus 6. Look for the commentaries. You'll be hard-pressed to find anybody who saw Jesus in this text. Okay? So what the New Testament preaches, we are also able to find written in the Old. And not by the power of learning, but by the teaching of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is he who reveals the text, because he's the one who inspired it. So I would say to people, 
Do not sit under a person who talks long from the scriptures, who does not know that the whole Bible is about Jesus. They're wasting your time. The whole Bible is about Jesus. Someone who claims to be a pastor, a man who has come from God, and yet does not know that the Old Testament, just as they knew, bears witness of Christ. What, what person comes from God and does not tell you about Jesus? What person claims to come from God and not tell you about Jesus? God does not send a message through anyone ultimately that is not testimony of his son. They are wasting your time. You are better off watching Jeopardy or The Prize is Right <laughs> or something of that nature. It's a better use of your time. Here the testimony of one who was sent from God. Let's go to John 1 verse 6. Verse 6 to 9. The testimony of one who was sent from God. John says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light. If anyone is coming from God, they are sent to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe, that all through him might believe. Verse 8, he was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of that light, to bear witness of that light, that was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. And that light was Christ Jesus, or that light is Christ Jesus, John the Baptist, representing the law and the prophets. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said John the Baptist represented the law and the prophets, came to bear witness of him, of the light that is Christ. So a preacher who does not bear testimony of the light of Christ is not from God. It's very simple for me. It is easy to catch. They could come from seminary, they have their degrees, they could be having a PhD in exegesis and whatever. If they don't bear witness of Christ, for me it's a simple matter. <laughs> they don't know. They have not been said of God. And so with that, we go back to Israel in Egypt and their predicament. God has brought them under the power of Pharaoh to enslave and oppress them because for this very purpose God raised Pharaoh that he may demonstrate his power of salvation through him. The children of Israel did not put themselves under bondage. Pharaoh had no power over them either to put them under bondage. It's God who did that. Pharaoh could not have power over God's people unless it was given him from above. And that to say there's nothing that is power in and of itself apart from God. Even curses derive their power from God. There's no person, there's no devil that can curse anyone. 
apart from God allowing it. Because if they had that ability, they would curse all those that God has already blessed. And we know the testimony of Balaam with Israel. Balaam could not curse Israel. He said it himself. You can't curse the one that God has blessed. No one has the power to curse anyone. So we hold to very high sovereignty. And of course, many people are ignorant of this matter because they have a low view of God. And I personally just despise law sovereignty. I just hate it. It's just, I don't want to hear it. Okay. So Israel is in Egypt because God sent them there. Israel is in Egypt because God was preaching. Preaching what? Preaching about the one subject matter that he knows how to preach. <laughs> he was preaching Christ and salvation. And Christ cannot be preached apart from sin. And that means apart from bondage. And that means apart from law. Because sin and law work together to produce bondage and death. Paul says this thing of sin is death and the power of sin is in the law. So that's how they are related. Sin and law always produce death. These matters you cannot understand unless God teaches you. And one can write a 200 page or even 1000 pages thesis on Israel's experience in Egypt and get an A for that class. Graduate first class and yet still miss the point. God raised the Pharaoh who put his people under bondage. It's God who raised him. Pharaoh could not catch measles or COVID. God made sure that Pharaoh would rise to be the king of Egypt and made sure that Pharaoh would oppress his people. Pharaoh had work to do, just as Judas had work to do. Judas could not get sick either. He was raised for the purpose of betraying Christ and there was nothing that he could do, nothing that the parents could do to stop it. But in the fullness of time, the Lord came down and spoke to Moses and commissioned him to be the deliverer of his people. And that means Moses became a type of Christ. And there's a lot of typology in the whole drama as we have been unfolding it. And unless you are initiated into the matter of Christ and typology, you miss a lot of wonderful things and some people get confused because typology is very fluid and we have learned to ride it as it changes. As God is changing the camera or moving the camera lenses, we have been able to follow his testimony. And we know that God sometimes had people wearing more than one hat in what they represented. So, for instance, Moses wore many hats 
as a type of Christ because he's going to be the one commissioned to deliver God's people from the hands of Pharaoh. And also Moses is a sinner. So you're going to see some testimony of Moses as a sinner. And ultimately, Moses is the mediator of the law because the law was given to him. And so God came and spoke to Moses and said, I have come down because I have seen and heard the suffering and cry of my people because of their oppression. And I've come for this very reason to deliver them from the hand of Pharaoh. And Moses, I want you to go and speak to Pharaoh to let my people go. Why would God go to Moses to speak to Pharaoh as if God himself was not able to go and speak to Pharaoh? Why spend all this time in that bureaucracy? That's what governments do. Why not just go straight to Pharaoh? No. God is teaching something. He wants to teach the matter of mediation. That someone has to be appointed to be the deliverer of the people. He's the one who goes. But then, God said he would harden Pharaoh's heart. So that he would not let the people go. I think we're going to have... Maybe two messages on the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. God said it. He would harden the heart of Pharaoh. And that is crazy to me. That is very crazy. If you think about it, why do that? If you want your people to be set free, why give a command to do something and yet get in the way of the doing of the very command? And to make matters worse, punish Pharaoh for not doing that which he could not do. Let my people go, but I'm going to stop you from letting my people go so that I can find reason to punish you for not doing what I told you to do, but that I'm not giving you ability to do. That's sovereignty. That's the God of the Bible. That's the God that we preach. Is that not fair? Many would argue, would say, that's not fair. That's not right. Is there any unrighteousness in God commanding people what they can't do? Romans 9 would say, there's no unrighteousness with God. Who are you anyway to want to argue with him? And many do not know this kind of sovereignty that is why they argue strongly against election and predestination. They don't know the God that they're dealing with. As a result, they also think salvation is something that happens if and when they decide to be saved. Like, I woke up on the right side of the bed this morning. I think I'm going to make Jesus something. I'm going to decide for Jesus. Assuming that naturally they possess the power to do what God commands. When God says repent and believe, he is not saying you and I have the natural ability to repent and believe. No, the command to repent and believe 
does not assume our ability. Only those born of God will believe and repent because God grants them the power. He grants them the ability to obey his command. Faith and repentance are gifts of God, which means they come by grace. We don't cause them. We don't have them naturally. Christ gives them only to those who should be saved. People do not like election, but the Bible teaches election. The matter is, does one believe it or not? It's not like the Bible does not teach election. The Bible teaches election. And it teaches election not for the White House, which it does too, because God says, I am the one who raises kings and puts them down. But even more importantly, it teaches election in the matter of salvation. So, Pharaoh could not set the people free. Pharaoh could not set the people free. He had not the power or the ability to set anyone free because there's a particular way that God designed for people who are in bondage to be set free. That's what God is developing. God meant to point us to how sinners are set free from their bondage. And that means how sinners are saved how sinners are made holy and righteous before him. So he puts them under bondage, and in salvation terms, that means sin and law is what has brought men and women under slavery, spiritual bondage, sin and law. Those are the two things, and that's what God is teaching in Egypt. He has brought his people under the power of sin and death. And apart from sin and law, there is absolutely no conversation of God's grace. There's no grace where there's no sin. There's no righteousness to talk about. Righteousness of Christ imputed. If you and I were not sinners, if you and I were not bound to the slavery of sin and its consequences. So sin and law are critical elements for people to understand God's gospel. The Bible says in Romans 3.10, there's none righteous. There's none righteous. No, not one. And all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have fallen short of the standard of Christ. And so the law comes and it shuts us up in the prison of hopelessness because it comes and demands perfection from imperfect sinful beings as conditions for eternal life. So you are already a sinner. The law comes and says for you to have eternal life and God's blessing you have to be perfect. So when people read the text where God says, be holy as I am holy, people think, oh man, I can be holy by if I just throw away my DVDs and turn off my cable and stuff, I'm holy. No. <laughs> you are too late into, into this game. You are at least how many years from Adam? 
relate to being able to be holy by yourself. Okay? And so God preached that testimony, that understanding through the testimony of Pharaoh. When he said this, here Exodus 4, Exodus 4 verse 9, did I quote this correctly? Could be Exodus 5. I think it's Exodus 5 from verse 4. I think it's Exodus 5 from verse 4. Then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Get back to your labor. And Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are many now, and you make them rest from their labor. Pharaoh understands that if Moses would deliver the people, these people would rest. So Pharaoh, in many ways, is also preaching the gospel. He makes the connection. If they are set free, then they rest. And he doesn't want that. Preachers of the law don't want to hear about the message of rest for God's people. So the same day, verse 6, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their officers, saying, You shall no longer give the people straw to make brick as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves, and you shall lay on them the quarter of bricks which they made before. We shall not reduce it for their idol. Therefore they cry out, saying, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. They are idle. They are not working because they are speaking of the sacrifice of Christ to their God. That's the gospel. That once the sacrifice is given, guess what? God's people are going to be set free. Which thing we're going to find happening in Exodus 11, 12 to 13. Let more work be laid on the man that they may labor in it and let them not regard false words, false words of God's free salvation on account of the Christ who was crucified. That is the accusation when we come and tell people that Christ is enough. Many say those are false words. You have to be a better person. You have to be progressing in righteousness. No, we say Christ paid it all. And the message of the gospel is a message of resting. And those are not false words. You antinomians, you people who hate God's law. No, those are their false words. We are not antinomians. We're telling people we are not laboring under Pharaoh anymore. We were set free. So Moses comes seeking for the salvation of his people. Seeking their rest from their labor. Sin and law puts men and women under restless labor to try and be good people. You try to be good today, maybe this week, but to no avail. But Pharaoh was not happy, he was not pleased. He did not want to give God's people rest. That is the only way that they could worship their God. You and I can only worship God in truth and spirit if we have his rest, when we have ended his rest, because he finished the work. That's the only way to worship God. So that is speaking to the testimony of the law against sinners. 
the law was not given to give sinners rest, but to get them to work, to work for something that they cannot earn, to run a race that they could never win, whose wages is not life but death. The law to set a very high standard that is non-negotiable, unreachable, unbendable. The people were saying, oh, the law is now within your reach. You can just hopscotch and you can do it. No, they are lying. The law remains unreachable, unbendable, non-negotiable. So the law does not help one to be righteous. It just demands that you be righteous of your own doing. As Pharaoh said to Israel in verse 7 and 8 of Exodus 5, you shall no longer give the people straw to make brick as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves, and you shall lay on them the cot of bricks which they made before. You shall not reduce it. The standard of the law shall never be reduced for anyone. And that part of you shall not reduce it is so important. I wish people would hear and understand what God is saying. Grace is not a reducing of the standard or of the demands of the law. Grace does not reduce the standard of the law. But it is an affirmation of law and justice satisfied through the obedience of Christ. That's what grace is. That's what God has done for you. That which you could not do, Christ has done. He has satisfied what the law was demanding of you. So grace does not give people a new ability to do the law. That is the reasoning behind progressive sanctification. To say, well, now that you have the Holy Spirit, the law is within your reach to do. No, that's not true. The law still says, if you miss one point of it, you are guilty of the whole thing. And James was writing to Christians in James 2.10. Paul was writing to Christians in Galatians 3.10. So grace is God saying, what the Lord demanded of you, he has granted freely in the obedience of Christ on your behalf. And that which Christ did is now yours for your own record, for your own filing, for you to claim as yours and to use that for all transactions that involve you meeting with God, whatever the context. What Christ has done, what Christ did, is what God has given for you to use in all transactions that has become your currency to trade with God, that has become your passport to enter into God's presence. Your conversation with God is around what Christ has put in your account. That's the gospel that a Lord cannot preach. So Pharaoh is totally opposed to the freedom of God's people. And we learned that Pharaoh has a dual testimony. 
He has the testimony of God as the sovereign king. Pharaoh is the sovereign king. And at this time of history, he probably was the strongest, most powerful king on planet Earth. So here he is a picture of the sovereign king as a picture of God. Also as a picture of the law who works through the taskmasters. Pharaoh works through the taskmasters which we said are a picture of the commandments of the law. The law is a taskmaster, and each individual commandment is a taskmaster. To say, oh, Paul, you have to perform, Sean, you have to perform, every day. They had to make bricks every day. So we need to understand Pharaoh as we need to understand the taskmasters, as we need to understand the bondage, and the manner in which Israel is to be delivered from that bondage. So Moses is introduced to us in this manner, in this drama, as a type of Christ. That's our first introduction of him. But Moses had many objections to the commission. <laughs> Moses had his own ideas. He continued to speak to his poor resume and qualifications and said, Lord, not me, not me, please go on indeed.com or some other job site on the internet and find a more suitable candidate who is not me. Please look for someone else. I'm not qualified for this. This assignment of serving people is above my pay grade. I do not know how to speak well. Apparently, you need to be able to speak well if you're going to be the mediator of the people. You need a good lawyer, right? For salvation, you need a very, 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 very good lawyer because you and I are criminals by nature. And for us to be set free from prison, the prison of God, you need someone who is highly skilled in speech. And that is Christ. So Moses is, ra is right. He's not qualified. Yeah? He's not qualified. So if we understand Moses correctly, his objections were not coming from someone who was just being stubborn or someone who was lazy. Moses, as a sinner, is saying he can't deliver other sinners from bondage. Secondly, as a picture of the law, he also was saying he could not redeem sinners. But God appointed Aaron, the brother of Moses, to accompany him to Pharaoh. The Aaron who could speak well. So Aaron becomes a picture of Christ also. But the first visit to Pharaoh did not go very well. It left the children of Israel under great distress and hopelessness. Their situation worsened. And Moses was furious at God for this very thing and said, you have made their life terrible. And that would take us to Exodus chapter 6, verse 1, all that to say, all that was introduction. 
<laughs> or that was introduction. Follow me, someone. We need to learn the truth. Exodus 6, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will let them go, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God says, I have brought things to this dead end where Pharaoh will not let my people to go so that I may demonstrate something to him and the people of Israel. You shall see what I shall do to Pharaoh. You shall see what I shall do to him. What shall you do? For with a strong hand, he will let them go. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. God says, with a strong hand, with a mighty hand, that mighty hand will have a bearing on Pharaoh and he will let the people go. He will set the people free. But what kind of strong hand is that which sets the people free who are in bondage? This is where those who rely on grammar and syntax <laughs> and not gospel hermeneutics get derailed and end up with only bedtime stories for the kids. This becomes a very wonderful story for the kids to send them to bed. God says, by a strong hand, he will deliver his people. Yes, God will bring the plagues to Pharaoh and Egypt. But Pharaoh doubled down and did not set the people free. And that means the plagues could not set the people free. The miracles could not set the people free. But the strong hand did. What does that mean? That is a gospel statement. Yes, God is going to bring all these plagues on Pharaoh and Egypt, but that did not set the people free. They still the strong hand. What is this strong hand by which God's people who are in bondage are set free? We are talking gospel. Isaiah 53. Let's go to Isaiah 53, verse 1 and 2. Isaiah says, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah, please define for us who is this arm of the Lord. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. So the arm of the Lord is a he, it is Christ, and by the strong arm of the Lord shall the people of God be set free from bondage. Now that's gospel preaching. We do much of our activities through our hands. And God is using the picture and using the language 
of hand or arm to speak to the power through which he does all his things. And in creation and salvation, Christ is the power through whom God does all things. So when you read the Bible, especially the New Testament, you're going to hear of creation happening through Christ, salvation through Christ. So he is the hand of the Lord in that regard by which Pharaoh is mad to set the people free because that hand of the Lord is going to come by way of the Passover lamb. That's the hand of the Lord that set the people free. This is not just speaking to power as in power. We are told that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And people are thinking, well, is the power to be uprooting trees and building buildings? No. <laughs> speaking to Christ. Christ is a strong hand that sets people who are in bondage to freedom. Let's go back to Exodus 6 verse 2. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. God says, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. Yes, I did appear to your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as God the Almighty. But by my name, Lord Yahweh, I was not known to them. In other words, I was not understood by them. They did not understand what that name, even though it was used when God was speaking to them. They did not know what it meant. But now God has come to reveal that name in the context of salvation. That name is very important because it reveals God or God reveals himself in the context of salvation. God, remember, if you still remember, also God had introduced this name to Moses. In Exodus 3, verse 14 and 15, let's just read that real quick. In Exodus 3, 14 to 15, God said to Moses, answering Moses' question, What shall I say to the people if they ask me who appeared to you? God said, I am that I am. And he said, You must say this to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, you must say this to the Israelites. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial from generation to generation. So I am that I am is Yahweh the God who is always there, the self-existing and self-sufficient one, the God who is, you and I are not, he is. The I am whose reason for existence is himself and in himself. 
We all exist for the reason of someone, our parents, but ultimately for God. But God exists for himself and in himself and is uncaused by anything. He has always been unchanged, not learning anything about you, about your sin. He has known your sin before he met anything, every one of them. It is he who guarantees salvation because nothing ever happens to him. He never runs out of office. He never gets voted out of office. So he's able, he ever lives to guarantee your salvation. Now God seeks to expand on that name, expand the understanding or the significance of who he is when you hear that name. What you're supposed to understand about that name and says verse 4 of Exodus 6. I have also established my covenant with them, with the fathers. To do what? To give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, in which they were strangers. And I have also had the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. God is hearing the groaning and the mourning of his people. He is in heaven. The angels are worshipping him. He is keeping all the planets from crashing into each other. He is taking care of the birds of the air. The kangaroos and the skunks and all the deep sea creatures. And in the midst of all that, he says, I've heard the crying of my people. He hears all that because he knows he's God. That's what makes him different. So the significance of this Yahweh name is going to be shown in that he has established a covenant with them. The fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so their children. So this is a covenant-making God. Which means he does not do things that he has not bound himself to. He does not make a new covenant with you today and another one tomorrow. Like a lot of people do. With every New Year's resolution, they have covenants with God. Oh God, I'm going to be so good this year. Bless me if I would behave, if I would give my money, if I would make a new covenant with him. No. He only honors the covenant that he made himself through his son, in his son. Hebrews 6.13 Hebrews 6.13 and 14 For when God made a promise to Abraham Because he could not swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. There's no one greater than God. So if he has to bound himself to doing something, he can only swear by himself. And that is why Abraham was put to sleep in the Abrahamic covenant. 
so that he would not participate in that covenant that would bring our salvation. Saying, surely blessing, I'll bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply you. The swearing of God by himself is what makes him to be God. Because he fails not. Our salvation is not in our faithfulness. It is not in our running. It is not in our willing. But in his faithfulness to himself. It is in his mercy. His unchangeableness. Your salvation is secure. Not because you went to church. Not because you read your Bible. Not because you're baptized. But because he is the Lord and he changes not. He doesn't say one thing today and then changes his mind tomorrow because he just did not know that Katie was that bad. Like, oh, I didn't know that Katie could be that bad. No, it doesn't work like that. He knows the end from the beginning. He has ordered our ways. He has ordered our steps. Okay? But what did he swear to give? He says, the land of Canaan, the land of the pilgrimage. So this God is known by what he gives. He gives some real estate. The land in which the forefathers were only pilgrims. The forefathers were only pilgrims. They were sojourners. But why would they be sojourners in a land that is supposed to be theirs? That doesn't make sense. Promising to give them land, and yet they become pilgrims in the land that they're supposed to own. Why? Because God was not interested in real estate development. Here is the writer of Hebrews again giving us commentary. Hebrews 11 verse 8 and following. God is not interested in land for land's sake. He doesn't have any buildings that he wants to build. Hebrews 11 verse 8. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. That's just you and I. When we've been called by faith, we go out not knowing where we're going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So what was promised to Abraham as land, the Holy Spirit says, it was actually a picture of the heavenly city, which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God, which means anything that is on earth, there's no foundation. The foundation, the ease, is that which Christ has laid. Christ is the foundation. He is the builder of the city, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's what Abraham was looking to. Hebrews 6.13 This all died in faith. Speaking to the whole of faith. Not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, 
were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims of the earth. For those who say such things, declare plainly that they seek a homeland, not in Israel. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they'd come out, they would have had opportunity to return, if this was about here on planet Earth. Now they desire, verse 16, a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So all those promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were only pictures of the city that God has prepared for his people. See the connection. So the Canaan, the land of pilgrimage, was not the end. It was only a type of the reality of the heavenly country. But Israel, for now, has to continue in that shadow until Christ comes and is revealed. They have to continue with the shadows. Okay? Let's go back to Exodus 6, picking up from verse 5. God continued and said, And I have also had the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. In and by this name, God has had and hears the groaning, the crying of his people, the children of Israel, who are in bondage to the Egyptians, who are in bondage to sin. So clearly the Egyptians are being used here as pictures of the spiritual bondage that God's people find themselves and needing deliverance from. And in this covenant, and by this name, he had them and remembered his covenant is the most remarkable thing to be had of God. It's the most wonderful thing to be had of God. Because many shall seek to be had by him and he shall not hear them. Many in judgment, many in hell shall seek to be had by him and he will not hear them. So it is a blessed thing when you have faith and repentance in the gospel, in Christ, it means God has had you. And he says, my covenant, salvation is God's covenant to himself to deliver a people in bondage. And that means the covenant by which sinners are set free is the one that is conditioned on the doing of God alone. It's his covenant to do. It is a covenant conditioned on the obedience of Christ alone. And so he established the unconditional covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15 to give him and the heir and to bless his generations after him called in Isaac. In Isaac shall your seed be called. But the Abrahamic covenant was not the beginning of the covenant of salvation. 
but it was the unfolding of the eternal covenant that God made with Christ. Christ did not just show up like he was going on vacation in Palestine. <laughs> he came as someone who was bound to a covenant. He had things to do that were agreed between him and the Father for the salvation of his people. To Abraham, God said, I am the Lord who brought you out of the air of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit. The air of the Chaldeans is somewhere Mesopotamia, Baghdad, Iraq. That's where Abraham used to be, worshipping idols. So God appears to Abraham and says, I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of the Chaldeans to give you this land, this inheritance, this salvation. And to Moses and Israel, God said in verse 6 of Exodus 6, Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. And what will you do? I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Outstretched arm. It's very purposeful. <laughs> Outstretched arm. So Yahweh will introduce himself to his people as the God who brings out from something from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Yes, the burdens. The Egyptians have burdens on God's people. The law has burdens on God's people from which they need to be set free. And they've been set free. And they're still preachers who are employed by Pharaoh to bring burdens on God's people, which they do not lift with even one of their fingers. As Jesus said to the scribes and the Pharisees, you lay heavy burdens on people which you yourselves don't even lift with one of your fingers. So God knows that his people are under burden. And when Christ showed up, he came with the same language of lifting of burdens and says, his yoke is easy and burden light. He knows something about Egypt. <laughs> Jesus knows everything about Egypt and burdens. So he came to lift them up. See the language of salvation. He said, I will rescue you from their bondage and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. He will do it. No one helps him to save sinners. When Yahweh came in the flesh, we were told that he shall be called Jesus and there was a reason given. Because he shall save his people from their sins. He shall set the captives free. That's the language of Isaiah. He shall be the ransom for the freedom of the people. So Jesus is the God who says, he is the God who came and spoke 
to Moses. Christ Jesus, by his outstretched arm on the cross and great judgments, he set his people free. And what will happen in consequence of that deliverance, verse 7, I will take you as my people and I'll be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who brings you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. You shall know. I will take you as my people, as my possession. And you shall know that I am your God. And you shall know by way of salvation shall you know that he is God. Apostle Paul to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 said this in verse 28. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Once you purchase something at the mall, at the store, guess to whom it belongs? Belongs to you. You can prove by way of receipt that it is yours. Christ purchased the church with his own blood. Okay? The church belongs to him. So the church knows the Lord God through salvation. The God who brought us out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, that is the burden of sin and death. Christ Jesus took possession, full possession of his church because he paid for it. So the bondage of the children of Israel in Egypt was so that they would know who God is. This matter is not understood by many. That is why many think that Christ came to correct a garden experiment that went bad with Adam and Eve. There was no experiment that went bad in the Garden of Eden. Everything went exactly the way that God wanted it to go. To lay the foundation for the coming of Christ that God may be known by his people through the cross and by way of his grace. Adam sinned because that is exactly what God intended. God determined again to be known by us through salvation. And that means through redemption from sin and death. And according to Ephesians, to the praise of the riches of his glory. He has been praised. And this is not as an afterthought. That's what he intended right from, the, from before the foundation of the world. That he has to be praised. You and I are just not going to be walking into heaven without praising him for it. You have to praise him for his blessing, his eternal life, and all things. And that means sin was purposed by God. You're going to hear a lot of gymnastics around this matter. A lot of gymnastics. I don't know why people cannot think. This is very simple. If God has been praised for his glory, 
which thing he determined before he created anything, then sin is the means by which he's going to be praised for his grace. So sin is part of the equation. Nothing surprising to me. <laughs> he was just setting the foundation to introduce us to himself. And so this was the mystery of Christ Jesus. The mystery of what God intended or meant by all that which happened in his creation is only understood in Christ. All of creation is only understood in Christ. There's nothing that can be understood apart from Christ. Whether it's creation, whether it's the black hole, life itself, even death, it's all about the glory of Christ. Ephesians 3, from verse 1 to 7. Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy prophets and apostles, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. The mystery of Christ encompasses all things, but in the matter of salvation, it also covered not just the elect Jews, but also the elect from among the Gentiles. That was something mysterious, not in the sense of hard to understand. Mystery here does not mean hard to understand. It means something that cannot be known apart from being initiated into it. So it's kind of cultish language if you would want to use that language in a positive way. You have to be introduced, you have to be initiated into it. But once you've been initiated, it's not hard to understand. It's about Christ. Now, to the purpose of the mystery, verse 8 to 12. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's the matter of the gospel. The unsearchable riches. To preach is to declare, is to broadcast the unsearchable riches of the person of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. Remember what I said earlier. To the intent that now, now, the manifold wisdom, 
the variegated wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. So the church is the organ, as it were, by which the mystery of Christ is made known to God's creation. So we are that important in that respect. According, verse 11, to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So God, God's eternal purpose was already accomplished in the person of Christ. And that eternal purpose included your salvation, already done in Christ, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. So this is what Christ did for his people. He gave us the boldness to come before God. He gave us the access which the law could not give, which Adam, even on his best day, could not give you and I. Only in the person of Christ do we have the boldness because we've been accepted. We have his righteousness. So the manifold wisdom of God is known, has been made known by the church. Science will tell you about the Big Bang and stuff. The manifold wisdom that has been given to the church says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth and said, let there be light. That wisdom People are spending millions and millions of dollars, billions, sending Hubble telescope version to all to try and find the mysteries that we have in the Bible. <laughs> we already know. Christ may be known and has been known, has been made known to us through our salvation from sin. So Christ is the disclosure of God. When you see Christ, you have seen the Father. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. The one who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. He has exegeted him. When people talk about exegete, exegete, that's where it comes from. He has made God known. And that to say, there's no person who causes anything in salvation. You are not helping your own salvation. Why? Because salvation is an eternal matter. Established by God in Christ, accomplished by the Lord Jesus, but it has now been made known to us by the Holy Spirit, whom he has made, whom he has given his people, all of God's people are possessed of the Holy Spirit as a seal, guarantee of salvation. So you see that in the revelation of Christ is the revelation of God, even the Godhead. In the coming of Christ, we know God to be the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You can't tell the truth on Christ if you deny that reality. That's the eternal, eternal purpose of God. God can only be known through the person of Christ. He reveals the Father, He reveals Himself as the Son, and He reveals the Holy Spirit. So do you see that connection with the statement that God made about Israel in Egypt? And Egypt was a type of the world in which God's people find themselves under bondage. The whole Egyptian experience is a type of the world 
in which God's people find themselves in bondage. And we see in Egypt, even going back to the story of Joseph, that the deliverer who brought food to a starving nation, who brought the knowledge of how to feed a nation in the time of starvation, was someone who was not raised in Egypt necessarily. Joseph had to come to Egypt and God made him the deliverer. He came up with the idea to raise that much food and build silos that in the time of hunger they would have something to eat. Okay, And Moses is raised with Pharaoh in Pharaoh's house for a different gospel testimony that we have already spoken to in the previous messages. Okay, Let's go back to Exodus 6, verse 8. God continues and says, And I'll bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I'll give it to you as a heritage or as an inheritance. I am the Lord. So see that God is always saying that at the beginning or end of a statement, I am the Lord. So he promised to bring them to the land which he swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he gave them that land. But the reality of that sermon which God was preaching is Christ. In Christ alone do we have possession of all of God's promises, for God's promises are yes and amen in him. So there's no other land that are going to be given. All of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ. So God will bring all his elect, he is redeemed into his salvation and blessing. He will do it. And someone may ask, I see someone posted earlier on Facebook, maybe a day or so ago, about infant salvation. Actually, I saw it on multiple posts. That's very easy for me. So, how does God save infants? If the infants are to be saved, it's easy for him, because salvation is by grace. (laughs) Salvation is by grace. They're saved by the righteousness of Christ, imputed just like anybody else. And that is why we say faith and repentance are not causes of salvation. Christ is the cause of salvation. So if God wants to account the righteousness of Christ to an infant, that's not hard for him. If he wants to account righteousness to one who is mentally impaired, that's not a problem for him. We are all mentally impaired anyway. Right? We are mentally impaired. We are not causing anything by believing. Believing is just a result. It's a fruit of a salvation already given. So it's not a problem for God. But he did not want to speak much to it because it's it's his business. What we know for sure is Christ said, of all those that were given him by the Father, he will lose not one. He will not lose any of his elect because of abortion. He's not losing them. Not with respect to eternal salvation, no way, no day. Okay, He will get all of his people to himself. So all of God's people will come to Christ. They shall make it to heaven because he says, I am the Lord. 
he has tied himself, his name to this project. God has put his reputation on the line to say, I'm going to do it. He will not run out of budget to complete this project of your salvation. And the last time I checked, he said it's finished. <laughs> the project is already done. It is finished. And that means all that he came to serve and their passports to heaven were secured. All of God's people have their passports to heaven. And God communicates that you have a new passport by way of faith and repentance. That's how you know. That's how you know that if you drop dead here and now, you have a passport to grant you entry into the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse 9, Exodus 6. So Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel, but they did not heed Moses because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. Now the unbelief of these people is on display. And God is showing us that this is the natural condition of all people, even his own people. They did not heed Moses as he was preaching to them about their own salvation. They did not. They did not heed Moses. Because there's none who is born with the ability to believe. There's no one who is born with an ability to believe God. And that means faith is given by way of the Holy Spirit in the context of the gospel. Faith is given. It is not self-generated. Faith is given only to as many as should be saved in the time that God appointed for you and I to have faith. We do not cause our own faith. But it is also true that the people did not heed Moses as representing the law. Remember who Moses is. Moses also represents the law. And no one heeds the law. No one does the law. We are all lawbreakers by nature. The text says they did not heed Moses. They did not listen to Moses because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage that surely had degraded them. Hard labor does cause bondage and spiritual anguish. That is what sin does to people. Spiritual bondage and anguish. And this is where Lordship salvation is really bad news. Because this is the state of God's people. They are in spiritual bondage and anguish because of sin. Even though they are redeemed. They still suffer a lot of things because of sin. Some have bad relationships, bad marriages. Some are struggling with their children. They have all these things that are warring against them. And what they hear, what they need to hear is the message of their rest. Okay? They need to hear of the message of their being accepted by God, of their passports to heaven being stemmed by the blood of Christ, of their righteousness freely imputed. Okay? 
So you can't cause people who are already in anguish to try and set themselves free, to cause them to look to themselves. I'm like, there's nothing that I can find good that I should be looking at myself. Show me someone better. Show me Christ. Verse 10. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the children of Israel go out of his land. Go and tell Pharaoh to let the children of Israel to go. God is so determined about the salvation of his people. Let my people go. Verse 12. And Moses spoke before the Lord saying, The children of Israel have not heeded me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. So Moses still has objection. <laughs> God is amazingly long-suffering. Moses, over two, three chapters now, from chapter three, he has been raising objections. <laughs> he says, no one listens to me. The children of Israel do not listen to me. How do you expect Pharaoh to listen to me? And that is true. In the matter of salvation, God does not listen to Moses. He does not listen to the law as the basis of your justification. Because Moses ultimately is not your mediator between God and yourself. God will not listen to you if you come by way of Moses, by way of the law. Remember, Pharaoh is a type of God. He listens to the testimony of him who has circumcised lips. That means clean lips. And that means Christ Jesus. One cannot appeal to God on the basis of law. Not on the basis of their own doing. But on the basis of his own name, which he said, I am the Lord who delivers and on the basis of his covenant, on the basis of his Christ, on the basis of his grace and mercy. And that is why the Matthew 7, 20 to 23 people, they came having a conversation about salvation, and then they appealed to their own doing. Lord, Lord, did we not do these things in your name we cast out demons in your name, wonderful works in your name. We prophesied in your name. They are using the wrong approach. They are talking. Christ is the one who has circumcised lips, who is supposed to talk for them as the mediator. If you find yourself in the presence of God and you are doing the talking, then you are in serious trouble. <laughs> Because God did not appoint for you to talk for yourself. If you belong to Christ, Christ is your mediator. He is your high priest. He is your advocate. And the Greek word there for advocate means he is the family lawyer of the family of Christ. He's the one who does the talk. Okay? Verse 13, and that's our last verse. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a command for the children of Israel and for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. 
So God gave a command for the salvation of his people. Salvation is a command from God. And it's going to be done and it's been done. Pharaoh, as I said, represents the testimony of the sovereign God. Because ultimately, from the hand of the sovereign God, we must be set free. And that by his own command. We are not being set free from the devil. Our real problem as sinners is God himself. And if we have to be set free, we have to be set free from his hands because he said no one can deliver from his hands. You can be delivered from the devil. You can be delivered from a bad marriage, from whatever, but no one can be delivered from his hand. And the gospel is the declaration that all of God's people have been delivered from God's hand by the sacrifice of Christ, reconciled to himself. Christ made peace by his cross. He made peace for us with God. Okay? The mediation of Christ, his priesthood, the advocacy of Christ was represented by Moses and Aaron as they went to Pharaoh. But unlike them, when Christ intercedes on behalf of his people, God hears. Because Christ is holy and righteous. And Christ has met the conditions of our release. He argues our case bears on his own merit and said, and says, I died. I made the payment. Christ stretched out his hands on Mount Calvary. That is the basis of his intercession for us before God. So our salvation is secure because God said, I am the Lord. <laughs> I am the Lord who has established my covenant. And I'll give you my salvation. I am the Lord. I'll bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians for the sake of my name, that my name may be glorified. I will rescue you from your bondage or their bondage. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments, and that is the gospel testimony redeemed by the outstretched arms of Christ on Mount Calvary from the burdens and bondage of sin, of law, and death. And that's very good news. You can take that to the bank. <laughs> that's good news. Praise the Lord. Amen. We are, we are done. Thank you for tuning in. Praise God. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again for the message that you've given us on the testimony of Christ as it was preached in the land of Egypt about the salvation of his people who were under heavy burdens of Pharaoh, under slavery, toiling away without an end. And that being a picture 
of our own toiling under sin and death, and now being recovered, being redeemed by the Christ who came and outstretched his hands on Mount Calvary and made full payment for our sins. We thank you for setting us free. That is the message to God's people, our salvation, our salvation in Christ. We honor you, we glorify you in all things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.